You're listening to the Flying Goat Farm Podcast with your host, Lisa Check. This podcast is for people who love yarn and fiber and sheep, who love to knit and crochet and maybe even felt. We will be talking about the crossroads between keeping sheep and goats, making yarn, and expressing your colorful self. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of the Flying Goat Farm podcast with me, Lisa Check. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about um, the fiber shed some more and um, what our options for color are. But before that, here's what's happening on the farm. It's the last week of October, and so we have finished harvesting most of our things. Um, We harvested the sweet potatoes and we harvested the um, winter squashes. Um, It was a very disappointing gardening year. I'm not the gardener because I do not like to weed. But usually with our sweet potatoes, we get, I want to say like three to 400 pounds of sweet potatoes. And usually they are like two-fisted size. And this year they're all, like the largest ones are one-fisted size. And I, we didn't, even get 50 pounds of potatoes this year. We never got a tomato off of our regular tomato plants. We have gotten good cherry tomatoes. Um, we got some good amount of fruit, I would say, um, but it just was not a good year. And I can't even place my finger on what was the problem. It's not like we didn't get rain. It's not like we didn't have hot days. I think that that was just kind of like all out of order. Um, so it didn't match what the plants needed at the time when they needed it. So anyway, we're going to have to buy a lot of our produce from the grocery store this winter. And today I started working um, on my holiday collection. Um, I always use my holiday collection to highlight my sparkly yarn. Um, and so I'm coming up with some great, um, holiday colors, like Christmassy colors, but then I think I want to go like a little Victorian Christmas as well. So stay tuned for that because I am working up that collection right now and I will be putting this on my Instagram feed. I'll be putting it in my Facebook feed and um, talking about it on Thursday Thrums on Facebook Live. So come and join me there if you want to see the new yarns. So let's get to it. Um, Industrial dyes are really, really harmful. Um, and they've become more and more harmful as our fashion trends have gotten faster and faster. Um, I talked a lot about this in episode eight about the dyes that are being used um, and how it is one of the biggest sources of pollution right now in the world. Not only because it's being made from um, petroleum products. So we're pulling petroleum out of the earth to make colors for these clothes that we're wearing once and then throwing away. But also these are highly toxic kinds of chemicals that give the dye. Um, We really aren't dying this way in our own country anymore. I think it was banned a, a while ago, but it is being used in China and Pakistan and Bangladesh in countries where there are not rules against pollution, where there aren't safeguards, not only for the environment, but for the people. Um, you can see like effluent from these big 
textile mills just being dumped into water, waterways. And so it's affecting the drinking water for these communities. Um, also, as I talked about in episode eight, um, a lot of these chemicals are endocrine disruptors. So they cause fetal development disorders. They also change your makeup with your, um, your hormones in your body and your family's hormones. Um, and they're also carcinogenic and mutagenic. That means that they can mutate your DNA. So, um, really, we need to be moving away from using these kind of chemicals in the, in the large, vast numbers that we are using these chemicals. If we go back in time, you know, natural dyes have been used for thousands and thousands of years. They were probably discovered by people who were hunter gatherers who noticed that certain muds, um, certain, um, kind of metallic dirt that was around and also plants that they stain, not only they stained their fingers, but they probably stained like the skins that they were wearing as clothing. And because we are highly creative people, we began to use those muds. We began to use those plants to actually decorate um, our clothing, decorate our living space painting like the caves, like the caves of Lascaux are probably are basically um, pigmented mud and other kinds of um, pigments on the walls. And as we became uh, farmers, um, we started to make our own clothes. We started to spin and weave cotton and wool and animal fibers and things like that. We learned how to create beautiful colors from the natural plants and probably mud and some animals that were um, out there. We learned to use it um, so that we, again, would be decorating ourselves. Um, I think about um, this family that is in the book, True Colors, which I know I've talked about in a previous podcast. Um, I've talked about the book. It's a book all about um, natural dyers around the world. So this family is in Mexico and they have like over 200 colors um, that has been passed down generation to generation to generation to generation that they make from plants and animals in their environment. And it, these recipes are not written down. They are just being passed down um, through their family. When I say animals, what I'm talking about is like cochineal, which is insects. Um, those kind of um, animals being used as dyes. Um, the first petroleum dyes that were found were found in the 1850s and that right during our industrial revolution. And of course that changed the course of everything because those dyes are, um, they're consistent. Um, they make the same colors over and over again, whereas natural dyes can be affected by a lot of um, external factors. Um, and since that, the 1800s, our knowledge of these natural dyes has fallen by the wayside for so many people. Thankfully, there are artisans and even whole communities all around the world that have kept the knowledge alive. Communities that do, you know, are making 
planting and gathering and making indigo vats in Africa, in Southeast Asia. Um, people in um, the, the, Navajo, the Navajo Nation who collect plants in their environment to um, dye their churro um, wool so that they can make beautiful blankets. They, these people have kept the tradition alive and we can be thankful for them for doing that. What the fiber shed movement is all about is to move away from materials and for dyes that are made from petroleum, not only for our own health, but for the health of textile workers and the health of our planet. And fiber shed wants, you know, the whole, the movement considers your fiber shed kind of like a watershed. It proposes that you source your textiles and the dyes that you make that, that you dye the textiles with in an area that's a hundred to 200 miles from your home. And that's, that's kind of what the whole movement has been about. And if we, if you just look around your area, I'm in the mid Atlantic States, this would seriously limit the colors that I could have in my wardrobe. I can make beautiful um, yellows. I can make beautiful browns. Um, but I can't really grow indigo here. And the closest indigo I think that is planted is maybe South Carolina, which it would not be considered in my fiber shed. Um, I couldn't get um, consistent pink colors from cochineal because that's coming from Mexico. Um, and there aren't any um, cactus in my area that I could grow those insects on. So um, yeah it would limit the number of colors that you could have in your wardrobe. And I just want to say a quick word about the, the dyes that I use. Of course, because I'm interested in the fiber shed movement, I will be developing a line of naturally dyed wool on my local yarn, um, my, my local wool yarn and mohair yarn. And most of that will be coming from, um, other areas, because I do want to have the pink of cochineal. And, uh, you know, I can grow matter, so I can have orange, I can get browns from the abundance of black walnuts in my neighborhood, in my, on my farm, um, goldenrod, and, and I will be planting um, a whole bunch of dye plants um, this spring. But until then, and even when I have that line, I will be still having my acid dyed yarn. Um, I use household vinegar to set this yarn and I use a safe detergent to wash the yarn. Um, and these dyes, while they're made from chemicals, they are relatively safe in the amounts that I'm using at one time to use on my hand dyed yarn. Um, I'm the effluent that I have. If I'm doing everything totally correctly and I keep good records, I do, um, when I am done with the dyeing process, I have colored yarn and I have vinegar water. There's no dye particles left in the water. There's no dye that I'm pouring down into my septic tank and into my, um, my well water, basically. Um, I'm not pouring it out in the forest. It's all being attached to the yarn. And it's in small enough quantities that it isn't going to cause 
the kind of problems that the industrial level of production causes. So how are we going to do a fiber shed movement? Does every, will everything be white or charcoal? <laughs> it's something that we have to really think about, I, I think. And I, I, so I think there are two ways to accomplish it. One, we can use naturally colored yarn. And so that is made from animals that are black or charcoal, from animals that are brown or tan. Um, there's also naturally colored cotton out there. Again, that wouldn't be from my particular fiber shed because it is being grown in California and it is being grown in Peru. Um, in the late eighties, when I, I'm semi embarrassed to say when I started weaving and spinning, there were green, brown, and even some blue cotton varieties that were being grown in California. Um, they, the cotton grower at the time was kind of um, pushed out of California by all the white cotton people. They did not want her pollen to be um, in, infecting and pollinating their white cotton fields. Um, so she was kind of drummed out of town. But she is making a comeback. Um, and you can find out more about this on her website. Her name is Sally Fox. You can look her up. And I'll also put a link in the show notes for this. And two, you can use naturally dyed yarn. And these again are starting to make a comeback in a larger quantities. Of course, there's always been people that have died for their own purposes, um, but there are more and more people who are dying in order, dying, naturally dying in order to sell. So with Flying Goat Farm, we the, what we have for natural colored yarns is that we have a tan, we have some brown, and we have charcoal colored yarns that, from our own animals and from those of our friends. So if you look on our website, um, our, our tan yarn is called cacao. It's a two-ply mohair that was made from our, our brown goats. Um, we also have like a uh, chocolate-colored yarn that's called Mopaca that it was made with, it's about 50-50% um, alpaca and mohair. And that alpaca was from um, animals grown in Virginia, so that's still within our fiber shed. And then I've got several different charcoal-colored yarns from our animals and those of our friends. So I have stratus, which is a thick and thin, light and dark um, yarn. I've got Puck, which is a 30-30-30 blend of alpaca, mohair, and wool. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Those two, that's what I have that's naturally colored right now. Um, there are several breeders in our area that have um, really beautiful um, naturally colored animals. If you're a spinner, you can certainly buy fleeces from those people and make your own beautiful yarn. And also they, some of them are actually having their fleeces spun up into yarn. So just, those are some places to look. And then of course, naturally dyed yarns. So there are some companies that um, make naturally colored, naturally dyed yarns that are made from organic cotton. Um, I put those, some of those companies 
in the last show notes, but I will do that again for these show notes. And there are a few indie dyers out there who are making naturally dyed yarns. Um, I am going to be adding that um, in the new year. Um, I just need to make my experiments like you've seen me do in the past and then start doing some production dyeing with those. So again, keep, if you're interested in this, um, make sure to, you know, subscribe to our newsletter, come and see the Thursday thrums and my Instagram and Facebook feeds. I'll be showing those. So how do we add natural dyeing practices to, um, to our dye lineup? So it obviously it's involves, uh, plants and some animals. Um, and it can be various parts of the plants. Matter is made out of the roots of the plant. Um, walnut is made out of the husks around the black walnut fruit or nut that's inside. Um, there are lots of dyes that are made from leaves. There are lots of dyes that are made from flowers like goldenrod. Zinnias make beautiful color. Hollyhocks make beautiful color. Um, and there are some dyes that are natural dyes that are just not sustainable. There are many dyes that are made from woods in the rainforest. And there's many um, dyes that have actually been almost made extinct. Um, the most famous of which is the purple dye um, that was it's found in mollusks in a kind of snail. Um, most famously in Rome, um, they they made this mollusk extinct because they just couldn't stop themselves because the purple was so beautiful. Um, in Mexico, they have one of uh, a species of this mollusk and the area where they live is kept a big, big secret. And um, it is used primarily by just one tribe or one community. And they um, work to, you know, they work to keep the health of these animals good. They don't kill the animal. They just, um, you know, extra extract some of this, this essentially ink that's coming out of the mollusk. And then they put the animal back on the rock to be able to feed. So they're never, you know, completely, um, killing the animal. They're making it sustainable, but you have to make sure that, you know, what you're using is correct. Cause Otherwise, we're still, we're damaging the environment just as if we were using our petroleum-based dyes. And some natural dye processes have, nev have not been healthy. There are um, many colors that you can get only by adding certain heavy metals like um, chromium or poisons like arsenic. I won't be making those colors. Um, and there's some dyes that can be harsh. You just have to use them carefully. And that, in that category would be indigo. Um, in, in indigo bass, you have a lot of lye. It's a very basic. It's very, um, it, it can be very harsh on your skin. So definitely you need to be wearing gloves at all times. You do see, um, in, in Africa and, in Southeast Asia, some of the communities that use indigo, um, the dyers have permanently blue dyed hands because they don't have access to gloves and they've never used gloves. 
And it's just, that's how you know those people are the indigo dyers because their hands are permanently blue. So for most fiber shed, quote unquote, fiber shed dyeing, you'd be using dye stuffs that are local to you and that are collected in a sustainable way, or you grow them yourself. And what I mean by a sustainable way, there's um, beautiful dyes that can be made by lichen. You don't take the whole, um, the whole area of lichen that you see, you take some of it, um, you leave the rest to be able to grow back. Um, again, even if it's like a goldenrod, you don't take the entire plant, you leave enough so that, you know, the roots can sustain, be sustained and they can grow back year after year. And then you will be able to harvest it the next year and the next year and to make it um, sustaining. So natural dyes, basically it's a two-step process for most of the dyes. There are a couple that is just a one-step, but for most dyes it's two-step. So first you have to take your textile or yarn and you treat it with a mordant. And a mordant is a metal salt that that facilitates the attachment of the dye particle to the yarn particle. So it's kind of an intermediary. Um, so you have a yarn, you have this, this other, this mordant molecule on there, and then the dye attaches to that mordant. And you're going to, then you have a dye pot that is made out of the plants or the extracts of those plants. And there's a lot of math that needs to be done. If you're using fresh plants, it's, you you need just as much, let's say you're using, um, goldenrod. You need just as much goldenrod flowers as you have yarn to dye. So that is a lot. It's like a, a, you know, one to one ratio with fresh plants. With ratios, I mean, excuse me, with extracts, you can use a smaller um, amount, a smaller percentage because it's been, um, it's been evaporated down so that it's very concentrated. And a lot of the plants that make good color are plants that you would be um, harvesting in the summertime. Um, now that it's winter, what can we find? Well, here in the mid-Atlantic, like I've said, there are hundreds of black walnut trees. Um, you can find some of these trees in, you know, national forests. You can collect those. You only need the husk. You don't need the nut part. Um, and, um, and the walnut is one of the, the, um, exceptions where you don't need a mordant because there's so much tannin in those husks that the tannin that gives the color is enough to attack. It, it is in itself a mordant. So it's like an all-in-one and, you know, makes a beautiful, rich brown color all the way to very, very light tan colors, depending on how much dye you have and how much yarn you have. Um, Pokeweed is, you know, ink, some people call them ink berries. Those, again, can be used um, to dye um, yarn and fabric. Um, Some of these plants aren't very... um, color fast and light fast. So they're kind of transient and you just have to be okay with that. Pokeweed is one of those that doesn't stay really long on a fabric, no matter what you do. 
And so I would, I would ask you to consider to add some of these to your local wardrobe. Um, and one of the great things about natural dyes or naturally dyed yarn and fabric is that they all kind of go together. They all have some kind of this underlying, um, mood, I would say, because it's not really a color. It's not like they're grayed out. It's not like they're browned out, but it's just like all of the colors seem to work together. Um, if you follow me on any of my platforms, I am making a local um, shifty sweater right now, and I'm using naturally colored yarn for my, the background yarn, and I'm using naturally dyed yarn for the contrast. And it's really fun because there, I, I, the dyed yarn is from a lot of different sources, from matter, from cochineal, from walnut, from um, fustic, and um, just a whole bunch of different um, dye plants and extracts that I have. And they all seem to work together. And so that's kind of fun. And so I would say, again, just as I've said with all of these um, Fiber Shed podcasts, is it's one small step. You can do one small thing to make one small change in, you know, our in our textile world. And so I would just ask you to plan one local garment. See if you can find naturally dyed local yarn to make it. Um, I have started a new Facebook group that's called FGF Fiber Shed Wardrobe Project, I think. I will put a link to it in the show notes because I did not write it on a piece of paper so I could tell you exactly. Um, but so far, it, there's it's there's not a whole lot of people in it, but I'd love to have you join me if you're interested in knitting a sweater, knitting a hat, knitting some gloves, just one one garment, one local garment that you can say that, hey, this is my fiber shed garment. And it, and it can grow, your wardrobe can grow from there. And of course, you can join my mailing list to be the first to know when my new naturally dyed fiber shed yarn will be available. Because we'd love to have it out into your hands making your one local garment. It would be awesome. So I hope that you will um, join me in making this one local garment and um, finding some naturally dyed fabric or yarn to start making a local wardrobe. It will be like the the beat of a butterfly's wings, that one small change that we can do can start a movement in our own areas, and it can be transferred to the rest of the world. So with that, until I see you or talk to you again, happy making. Well, that's this episode of the Flying Goat Farm podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review. Have a question you'd like me to answer? Send an email to goatherd at flyinggoatfarm.com. And to see our farm, and yarn and roving, check out our website at flyinggoatfarm.com. Follow me at Flying Goat Farm on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm Goat Herd on Ravelry. Until next time, happy making. <laughs>